campers flare over a bridge blockade. I can't believe that this is what it's come to so soon. People are getting shoved, people are getting pushed. The anti-logging demonstration that stopped traffic and how the protesters are taking today as a win. Demolition begins on the Winters Hotel and everything left inside. If you look in the windows, all our stuff's fine. Like All those rooms are salvageable and they don't even give it a chance to try to get anything and that's not fair. The devastating impact on those who've lost almost everything and new details about the cause and help desperately wanted. We hire people and sometimes they don't even show up to their first day of work. Businesses offering big incentives to entice new workers. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. Another anti-logging blockade stopped traffic on the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge during the morning rush hour today, the 10th of its kind in Vancouver just this month. But this time, frustrated drivers appeared to lose their patience and took matters into their own hands. Jean Hua has more on what happened. This is what you get when you mix civil disruption. I got kids in the car that are sick. Get the f out of the road. With driver frustration, you hit zero to road rage in no time at all. These are people who just want a livable planet in the next 20 years, and they're getting dragged around by the public. The group Save Old Growth is trying to force a conversation with the general public by blocking traffic across the province. While organizers knew shutting down the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge would flare tempers, seeing protesters deal with physical aggression is a worst-case scenario. I would certainly say now anything can happen. Not acting is the greatest risk that we can possibly take. Seeing things escalate further, not an option, according to Vancouver police, who arrested a 24-year-old woman on charges of mischief and intimidation on a roadway. Our tolerance level is much lower. Uh, we know the public is very frustrated and their tolerance level is low and therefore we will be responding quicker. Girl, you want to die, bro? The message to angry motorists, leave it to law enforcement to clear the blockades. Adding officers will do what is necessary to keep the peace. We don't encourage that type of behavior. Um, we don't encourage people to take matters into their own hands, no matter how frustrated you are. BC's Premier seeing little difference between these disruptions and the actions of anti-mandate protesters that were met with a heavy police response. They want to provoke anger from citizens. That's not how you affect change in a civil society. Still, these protesters say putting an end to old growth logging is a life or death situation and no level of public violence or threat of legal action will make them stop. We need to keep pushing harder if we want to win, because this is the kind of drama we need. So buckle up for more blockades, and no fueling commuter frustration is exactly what gets Save Old Growth protesters going. John Hua, Global News. A seven-year-old girl who went missing from Duncan with her father three months ago has been found safe. RCMP say the girl was dropped off by someone she knows at the North Cowich and Duncan RCMP detachment last evening. She is now back with her mother. Her father, Jesse Bennett, is still wanted on a Canada-wide warrant for abduction in contravention of a custody order after he failed to return the seven-year-old to her mother on January 20th.
Well, after some delays, demolition is finally underway on the Winters Hotel in Gastown. The historic building damaged beyond repair in last week's fire. The work is a major disruption for those who live and work in the area. But as Amadagahi reports, the city is promising the neighborhood will return to normal by the weekend. These toppling bricks had stood for roughly 115 years before Thursday afternoon. The fire-ravaged Winters Hotel in Vancouver's Gastown had to come down before its former residents helplessly watching. I'm at a loss for words. Like, this is not cool. Like, if you look in the windows, all our stuff's fine. Like, all those rooms are salvageable, and they don't even give it a chance to try to get anything, and that's not fair. After fire broke out earlier this month, dozens of vulnerable tenants were displaced. The flames too aggressive to try and escape with any belongings. The damage to the building too dangerous to try and retrieve anything after the fact. I'm choked. I'm choked. Because, you know, usually at fires you're allowed to go over it and uh, get your belongings sometimes. When they expressed strong interest to get back into the building, we brought a third-party engineer on board just to, just to give us a, you know, put a second pair of eyes on it and give a second opinion. And in the end, they confirmed my decision. It was unsafe for anyone to go in and retrieve items. At least one person taking measures into their own hands. Vancouver police say a man was arrested for break and enter at the building. Global News capturing video of someone climbing the fire escape just hours before the demolition was set to begin. He was trying to retrieve some of my husband's ashes and like the, my turtle. The cops bum-rushed him and dropped the turtle at the top of the stairs and told us we weren't allowed to have them. An initial fire investigation points to a candle in a suite on the second floor as the source of the fire. The building had sprinklers, but they were disabled at the time due to another fire three days prior and had not yet been serviced and restored. When we respond to a fire and there's the sprinklers are activated, we then have to shut the sprinkler system off in order to minimize the damage to the building or it would be a continual water flow inside the building. City officials on site say the demolition costs will fall to the owner. And the work will continue into Friday in Madagahi Global News. The Ukrainian-Canadian Congress wants the arson attack on a Ukrainian priest and his family to be investigated as a hate crime. In the early hours of Wednesday, gasoline was poured through the mail slot of the Victoria home and it was set on fire. Father Yuri Vishnevsky, his wife and three children escaped. But one of his daughters suffered injuries requiring surgery. The UCC is calling on police to investigate this as a hate crime, saying Father Vizhnevsky, the priest of St. Nicholas, is a strong supporter of the Ukrainian people and their defense of the homeland from Russia. Victoria police have now released a video with a possible witness they're hoping will come forward. The driver of a light-colored four-door car seen in the 1100 block of Caledonia Avenue on the morning of the incident. It's been more than five months since Abbotsford's Sumas Prairie was devastated by floodwaters and some residents there haven't seen a dime in government help. As Paul Johnson reports, the repair bills for one couple are in the tens of thousands of dollars and so far they've only received help from the community, friends and family. So this is the house? This is the house, yeah. Several months now since the floodwaters receded. You can see the home of Terry Cosma and Richard Gawilar is still unlivable, with no known time frame to the return to normal. 
Optimistically, we try to say a month, but it always ends up being another month. Richard spends his time hauling away what's left of his auto repair business. And Terry keeps tabs on their application for help from the province's disaster financial assistance program, which she says they applied for on November 24th. Nothing. Got nothing from them yet. They're still saying to us that we're probably in queue for another four weeks or something. Terry did say an adjuster came out to the property late last month, but with an estimated repair bill of about 30 grand, they could use the money now. What has been accomplished so far has been from donations. I think the vast majority of the prairies are frustrated. Much of what's been donated has come through the Yarrow Hub, where organizer Victoria Kewitt is in a position to talk to a lot of the flood victims and says many feel the same way. The government has been very slow to respond and not handing out payouts um, to the degree, the degree of damage or loss that was out there. This funding will help accelerate local government recovery efforts. The government was quick to announce that it got both the scope of the disaster and the immediacy of need. On Thursday, Emergency Management BC told Global News they know people need this money ASAP. They say nearly $5 million has been paid out so far, but that they're facing nearly four times as many applicants as they would normally see, as disaster also struck in places like Lytton and Merritt. But back near Abbotsford, many of those still homeless are out of patience. We asked Terry how she'd rate government response on a scale of 1 to 10. I would say 2. And that's being nice. In Abbotsford, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, Vancouver Island has long been known as a destination for retirement, but it seems it might be losing that status. A new report shows people who are moving there are younger. As Kylie Stanton reports, one reason for that is retirees simply can't afford to live there. For decades, Victoria has had a bit of a reputation, jokingly referred to as a place for the newlywed and nearly dead. But new research out of the Vancouver Island Economic Alliance shows a big shift is in the works. The island has been discovered. Since 2014, 89,000 people have moved to the island. That's equivalent to the population of Nanaimo. And while roughly half have settled in the capital region, there's been a huge influx in areas further north. The city of Nanaimo just came out with something. It said it's more younger people, 25 to 45. Uh, and that's um, certainly the advent of working at home. The remote model means they can cash out of larger centres and cash in here on the island. We decided to sell up on the mainland and head over to Nanaimo because the prices over here were pretty good at the time. And the further north, the further that money will go. Because Victoria is very, very expensive, even though you've got a lot of money from Vancouver, which does open up more opportunities here in the Central Islands. According to the Victoria Real Estate Board, the average price for a single detached home in the Capital Regional District is pegged at $1.4 million. Compare that to Campbell River at just $722,000. Still, that's nearly a 30% increase over this time last year, fueled by low inventory and high buyer demand. And it turns out 
retirees are the ones really paying the price. Absolutely. I th you know, we are seeing that uh, at, at every level in every community uh, that people are, are getting priced out of the market. The shift in migration has resulted in the number of people older than 50 moving to Vancouver Island on a steep decline, going from 59 to 35 percent in the past five years. It's definitely a change in the entire housing environment on the island. As for those who've taken the spots historically held by seniors, when it comes to staying here, they may have to push back their own retirement in order to afford it. Kylie Stanton, Global News. All right, let's take a look at our weekly COVID-19 numbers and what they might indicate about our sixth wave. There are 485 people in hospital now. That's up 121 over last week. However, take a look at our ICU number. It's 38, which is relatively flat. There have been 27 deaths recorded due to complications of the virus, and we have just over 2,000 new confirmed cases. Keith Baldry joins us with more on those numbers. Keith, what's the takeaway from those weekly numbers? We see hospitalization up, but ICU is flat and still 27 more deaths. Yeah, as we discussed last night, Sophie, there was an expectation hospitalizations would continue to rise until uh, we close the gap with Ontario. That seems to be what's happening. You just pointed out 121 more from last week. That's from Thursday to Thursday. But that's the net increase. The true increase is actually much higher. Here's how it breaks down by health authority. Over the course of the week, 154 people in Fraser tested positive in hospital in that health authority, 74 in Vancouver Coastal. Similar numbers in the interior, a little lower in Vancouver Island, just 20 in the north. So 365 people tested positive for COVID-19 who were in acute care settings in the past week. So the increase is far greater than the 121. This was anticipated, though, and as you mentioned, the ICU number is remaining flat, and that's good news, according to Health Minister Adrian Dix. So the hospitalization is a source of concern. It means there's more COVID in the community. It means that test positivity is higher. It means people have to take care. On the one hand, on the other hand, what we're seeing is consistently low levels in critical care, which is obviously good news for people with the most severe illness. So again, it's really important to keep an eye on that ICU number. If it doesn't really grow much, it doesn't really matter uh, that the case number grows because uh, it's a milder form of illness associated with the BA2 variant. And hopefully that trend continues. Next Thursday is the next data dump. I, ex data dump. I expect hospitalizations to be up again, and hopefully the ICU numbers remain stable. Let's hope. We'll see what happens then. Keith, thank you. Right. A BC woman hit by a car and now feeling slapped in the face by ICBC. The moment of impact caught on camera and how she says she's getting no help from no fault. That's next on the News Hour. Yes, that is another barge attracting attention in Metro Vancouver, where this one is stuck and what's being done to move it along. Still to come on the News Hour. If uh, the Russians don't want me to visit, I had no plans to go, uh, uh, but I guess I'll scratch that off my list of things to do. Plus, John Horgan banned how B.C.'s premier and dozens of other Canadians have made Russia's blacklist later tonight. Right now, though, a B.C. woman who was hit by a car says she's being left out in the cold by ICBC. She's self-employed and an innocent victim, but she is not covered for her lost wages. As Catherine Urquhart tells us, it's a cautionary tale about no-fault insurance. Victoria Ward enjoys a walk with her Bernese Mountain Dog, one of the few things she can do these days as she battles breast cancer and recovers from being hit by a car in December. All of a sudden, I was 
on the ground, um, and I wasn't sure what had happened um, at all. And I felt something warm coming down my back and sort of put my hand to the back of my head, and of course there was blood. Surveillance video taken by a neighbor shows Ward walking to her car near 86th Avenue and 152A Street in Surrey. Then a Toyota Venza drives toward Ward, striking her and tossing her body to the ground. The 50-year-old was rushed to Royal Columbian Hospital. So I did have to have staples to the back portion of my head. Um, it was my whole spine, of course, when I got hit, rotated. Um, so it was a lot of spinal, um, right elbow, right shoulder, right knee. Um, the bruising was kind of all over. The incident happened as Ward was reopening her daycare business. Now she's unable to work. She says ICBC has offered limited therapy and no financial help. With the changes to the enhanced care model uh, is that a lot of people such as Victoria uh, are falling between the cracks. And under the old system, Victoria would have had the right to sue the driver that hit her and, and be put back into the position she would have been in had this accident not happened. But unfortunately now, she's been left out in the cold. ICBC told Global News, to date, we are still waiting to receive the supporting documentation. When we receive the supporting documents needed, we will be able to look into some of the enhanced accident benefits that may be available to her, including the income replacement benefit. Ward says the incident has backed her into a financial corner, and she has few options but to sell her home buy something cheaper and because financially I have two kids still living at home and um, yeah you just kind of do what you have to do. Since Global News contacted ICBC on Wednesday, Ward says they have phoned her several times. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Coming up, sweetening the pot to woo workers. $10,000 signing bonus for Class 1B Struggling businesses pulling out all the stops to fill jobs. Plus, things seem to have gone a bit sideways here. What we know about Vancouver's latest stuck barge. Well, there's been another barge incident in Metro Vancouver. A large covered red barge appears to have become wedged sideways in the north arm of the Fraser River near Mitchell Island. That's not far from the Knight Street Bridge. A tug appears to have become grounded with its stern wedged under one side of the barge. According to the Port Authority, based on early assessments, there are no injuries or environmental impacts. Coast Guard is now investigating. Traffic on the bridge has not been disrupted. No word on how the barge ended up there or how long it might take to get it out. A labor shortage in B.C. means it's a good time right now if you are looking for a job or looking to change jobs. As Aaron MacArthur reports, struggling businesses in all sectors are offering some very generous incentives to hire and keep workers. And even that is not enough. Sunrise Kitchens is running flat out. The small manufacturer in Surrey has about 140 employees, but could hire another four or five people tomorrow. Retention has become one of the company's key goals for 2022. You know, we're trying to flag everywhere that we are hiring, and we can hire tomorrow. Anyone can start tomorrow as long as they're qualified. The labor shortage is being felt across the economy. Canada's unemployment rate at its lowest level ever. That's right, you heard correctly. $10,000 signing bonus. Some companies have taken to loudly offering bonuses and other incentives. 
Others have quietly posted the perks on sandwich boards outside of their operations. According to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the bonuses and hiring incentives haven't been successful on a large scale. Only around 5 and 20% respectively actually found those types of actions to encourage more applications. The provincial government recently announced measures to make it easier for foreign trained nurses to find work in BC and the federal government has promised hundreds of thousands of new immigrants to help fill labour shortages. Business groups say the key to these programs making a difference will be cutting red tape. Before they come into this country, they need to be able to understand the reality of the situation. So what job can I get? What kind of training do I need to engage in? Wages have had to come up at Sunrise Kitchens, but the company can't afford to pay bonuses or offer other perks to new hires. Instead, it's trying to build a culture that keeps people satisfied with their jobs. We give the option to have job rotation, job enrichment for people to really encourage them to advance their careers here with us. And if they're advancing their careers, then we are able to justify the increases that come with that. But the longer the labor market continues to be tight, the greater the risk they lose out on people who are finding it easier than ever to simply move on. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still to come, the hot ticket in town. I had to call uh, 70 times um, just because it's so busy in the morning when they open. The long wait to get into a walk-in clinic and how BC's doctor shortage is making things worse. Plus, ain't nobody's business. Hitting the stage on the downtown east side, the musicians finally having their moment later. Good evening. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge with just some leftover volume eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Premier John Horgan has been added to the list of people banned from visiting Russia. The latest round of sanctions announced by Russian President Vladimir Putin's regime adds 61 people to the list. Other premiers from across the country have also been added, including Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. The additions also include military personnel, political staff and journalists. The sanctions mean everyone on the list is unable to enter Russia. Consider that a badge of honour, not for myself, but for British Columbia. Uh, the fact that we were able to catch the attention of a brutal dictator in the middle of an illegal invasion of a neighbour uh, tells me that British Columbians stood up immediately and said, we are going to boycott Russian products. We are going to stand up and open our hearts and our homes to the Ukrainian people. I am proud to stand with the Ukraine. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and many other cabinet ministers have already been banned. Well, with Russia making a new and more aggressive push to gain control of territory in both eastern and southern Ukraine, the West is working feverishly to ensure it meets stiff resistance. NATO members, including the U.S., announced new shipments of military aid on Thursday. And while more European leaders toured some of Ukraine's most devastated regions, Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. From city to ruins in 56 days, it appears Moscow is making its final push. Mariupol. Russia's foreign minister saying Mariupol is under control of the country's army. 
If confirmed, it's the first real blow to Ukraine's forces, of which hundreds remain holed up in a steel factory, which Vladimir Putin says he wants blocked off so a fly cannot pass through. The fate of those inside remains unknown, the same for residents simply unable to escape. 100,000 local residents currently remain, says the city's mayor. An unknown number have fallen victim, with new graves seen from above. But Russia's forward movement is running into Western headwinds that carry with them tremendous military might. I'm announcing another $800 million. It brings U.S. spending to more than $3 billion. We're in a critical window now of time where they're going to set the stage for the next phase of this war. The reaction, immediate. The help is needed today more than ever, Ukraine's president tweeted. While Washington helps from afar, European leaders continue to go up close. The Spanish and Danish prime ministers witnessing the horrors left behind in Borodyanka before meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky. Spain pledging its largest military shipment to date. 30 trucks, several special heavy transport vehicles and uh, 10 smaller vehicles loaded with the military material. It sets the stage for a long, fierce battle highlighting the diplomatic gulf between Ukraine and Russia, prolonging the dangers for those caught in between. They are demolishing everything, says this Mariupol resident, as she boards a bus bound for a humanitarian corridor, escaping one set of dangers, uncertain of what lies down the road. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Well, a lot of British Columbians who can't find a family physician rely instead on walk-in clinics. But that's becoming increasingly challenging these days as well. A new report by the online tech company Metamap says BC has the longest wait times in the entire country, with one Vancouver Island city taking the top spot. Richard Zussman has more. It has the intensity of scoring tickets to a big concert, getting in to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. Uh, just really hard to get appointments. I had to call uh, 70 times just because it's so busy in the morning when they open. You have to try to call in the morning to get an appointment for that day, but they don't answer their phones. New data released by Medimap shows walk-in waits soaring in BC. In 2021, an average wait of 58 minutes to see a walk-in doctor, up from 43 minutes in 2019. This, while every other jurisdiction tracked, saw wait times drop during the pandemic, the national average going from 25 minutes in 2021 from 31 minutes in 2019. This was surprising to us. We internally had thought, um, you know, our expectation was that um, wait times would have gone down as a result of the pandemic because people are staying home, they're connecting with doctors virtually, it should have freed up capacity. Um, And that was what happened in every other province. So across the country, on average, wait times dropped by 20% in 2021 relative to 2019. Not the case in BC. The hardest place to see a doctor to walk in, Victoria. The wait's averaging more than 160 minutes, more than two and a half hours in the provincial capital. BC cities dominating the most weighted list, occupying the top six spots. We've seen in cities like Victoria, for example, a lot of clinics have been closing. You know, it's really difficult to get a family doctor. As a result, people end up having to rely on on walking clinics for access to primary care. One of the ways the province is trying to address the pressure on walk-in clinics are these primary urgent care centers, but they are actually taking staff away from those walk-in clinics and 
creating those additional wait times. We need a massive infusion of cash from Ottawa to deliver our public health care programs uh, here in Canada. It is what separates us from the United States. It's one of the proudest elements of our social safety net. But while waiting for those resources to come, those heading to a walk-in clinic will have to continue to do one thing. Wait. Richard Zospin, Global News, Victoria. Up next, a dream vacation abruptly cut short. They didn't even let me see my family. Why his Mexican holiday ended before it began. Plus, the ongoing woes of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Why Vanny Sartini says his team needs to pump up their brain power. Well, on Wednesday, we brought you the story of Iranian Canadians who had been conscripted into military service in Iran. Their time in the IRGC effectively banning them from entering the United States. And it turns out causing travel issues elsewhere as well. Elizabeth McSheffrey has more on the pressure mounting on the federal government to respond. I got cold, you know, I, I, I felt uh, I'm frozen now. It was supposed to be a worry-free family Christmas in Cancun when Shora Hussein Zadedekordi was told by Mexican officials his vacation was over before it began. They didn't even let me see my family. He was immediately put on a plane back, reluctantly leaving his wife and two children behind. My younger son, he's just five. He was just keep asking me, did they hurt daddy? A dream holiday turned into a nightmare, one he believes is linked to his forced military service more than a decade ago in Iran. How can you punish someone because uh, for, for something that he has no, uh, you know, choice? Hossein Zadidekordi is a former conscript of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, a section of Iran's military that's considered a risk internationally due to its terrorist links and oppressive activities at home and abroad. In 2020, the IRGC shot down Ukraine International Airlines flight PS752 above Tehran, killing all 176 people on board. It's the ideological army whose purpose is very specifically to defend the regime, not defend the country. But in Hossein Zadidekordi's 20 months of compulsory service, he insists he had nothing to do with those types of military operations, his job as an engineer repairing electrical equipment. We were forced to serve there and we had to do that and we did it. In 2019, the U.S. government declared the IRGC a foreign terrorist organization, meaning even those conscripted into service could no longer enter the country. After being blacklisted, several Iranian Canadians have reported being detained, interrogated and deported from other countries, their boarding passes stamped with quadruple S's, an American code that stands for Secondary Security Screening Selection. We we never knew that this uh, service uh, can affect my life in Canada. Montreal's Javad Mokhtarzadeh says being barred from doing business in the States cost him his paper company, The Cruel Connection. He says all he did for the IRGC was fill out paperwork. Making matters worse, he says even coming home to Canada has been made uncomfortable, with Canadian border agents asking him to produce an Iranian passport on top of his Canadian one. They don't believe that we are Canadian enough. It's estimated tens of thousands of Iranian Canadians have a connection to the IRGC, many not by choice, 
Global News spoke with nearly two dozen who have been banned from crossing the border. They say they're now in limbo, unsure where around the world they may be red flagged during travel. Canada has a close relationship with the United States. I don't think it would take a lot of political capital to raise this. Five years ago, Ottawa went to bat for Canadians impacted by former President Donald Trump's infamous 2017 travel ban on people from predominantly Muslim countries, including Iran. This advocate, now asking the federal government to do the same for Iranian Canadians caught up in a ban that never should have included IRGC conscripts. There's also something else in terms of the Canadian government's response, and that's to assure Iranian Canadians that they won't be facing future repercussions in Canada. The ministers of Immigration, Foreign Affairs and Public Safety declined interviews on this story. Not what Edmonton's Motograi wanted to hear. He was living and working in Wisconsin when he was banned in September 2020. 30 years ago, he says he translated articles about wastewater for the IRGC. This is very disappointing because uh, I am Canadian citizen and for last 20 years I'm working here hard to contribute in progress of this uh, society. While Ottawa ponders, these Iranian Canadians wait, wondering why the country that granted them citizenship won't vouch for them now. Elizabeth McSheffrey, Global News. All right, time to bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at that forecast. Jack, it is off. The sky looks bright. It feels a little more spring-like, mm -hmm. Christy. Yeah, big turnaround today, that's for sure. I had my puffy jacket on earlier, Sophie, with the cloud, cooler conditions. It wasn't heavy rain, but we certainly saw light rain throughout the day. And we haven't seen any thunderstorms, which had been advertised, I admit. Uh, there are thunderstorms south of the border, but they just didn't make their way up here. It had me wondering, though, how are we doing so far for the month of April? I know a lot of you have noticed it just felt so dreary over the last little while. Here's a quick look at the breakdown for April so far. This is in terms of precipitation. We have not linked together two days with no rain. You can see a few zeros there, but nothing in terms of two days in a row. Well, sorry, pardon me there. I see the 16th and 17th there, uh, two days, but that's uh, it. Um, so this is the rainfall so far in terms of average. We're still below average, but we still have more than a week left. Uh, we did have some snowfall, although none reported at the airport, but you can see the average is at 0.3. Temperature-wise, though, certainly below average. As I said, though, we still have a week left, but I think climate back to near average in terms of temperature would be tough to do that. But nonetheless, in terms of precipitation, it looks like we're pretty close. So there's the instability, but that instability is going to shift out overnight. We've got a great day on the way for us tomorrow. A few flurries up the east of uh, Williams Lake and a slight chance of a passing shower along the island, out through the Fraser Valley tomorrow, maybe along the mountains. But overall, we've got a nice dry day on the way. And it looks like our Saturday will start off as such as well, although the north coast will start to see a system to move into there. So again, near seasonal values in terms of temperature, isolated showers, possible in the afternoon, but it's a really slight chance. Mostly, I think what you have to look forward to is sunshine tomorrow and Saturday before the showers move back in on Sunday. Tonight's central windows weather window comes to you from looking out from Peachland towards the Okanagan Lake. Vanessa says the lake has been gorgeous lately, nice and mirror-like for days now. Back to you guys. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Christy. All right, Squire, just ran in. Yes, I did. And what kept you in the sports studio or sports <laughs> office for so long? Well, I was doing things. Last minute things? Watching the hockey game, and uh, we're going to update you on what's happening between the Canucks and Minnesota. It's been a good game. 
And uh, also Vanny Sartini. It's not going as well for Vanny this year as it was last year. And we'll talk to Vanny about that. Also coming up tonight, a big music festival on the downtown east side, helping these musicians find their voice. Or something like that. Are there actually 10,000 lakes? I don't think anybody's actually counted how many lakes there are in Minnesota. I think it's a guess. Someone has, for sure yeah. you know someone. Is it exactly 10,000? That's the other thing that seems really weird. I'll check Wikipedia. You check that. Um, okay, so unlike that game against Ottawa... The uh, Canucks are facing a team tonight that has something to fight for as well. Minnesota wants to uh, get ahead of St. Louis and uh, get home ice advantage in round one. That will likely be the matchup for them in the first round of the playoffs. They are going to the postseason. The Canucks, of course, don't know yet. They are in must-win mode from here until the end of the year, but they still have a chance. However, they are running out of road to catch up. So let's see how Bruce Boudreau, JT Miller, and the rest of the Canucks are doing so far in Minnesota. Kevin Fiala goes Hanson Brothers here. This is a slap shot move on Thatcher Demko. That really should be a penalty, but no call. I don't think the Hanson Brothers were called for the one they did in slap shot either. Okay, Brad Richardson, this is nasty. It's accidental, but uh, Kirill Kaprizov, that's four minutes to you. Uh, Richardson would return to the game though. Cam Talbot late in the first period. Toe save to keep it scoreless after 20 minutes. Lots of scoring in the second, though. We start with Kevin Fiala, the guy who tripped Demko. Now he scores on him. That one was easy for him. He's been on a roll of late. Another guy who's been on a roll of late is number 40 for the Canucks, Elias Pettersson. This is 12 in his last 12. Nice pass from Garland. Throws it out front, quick shot, right through Talbot's legs. We're even. Then Jared Spurgeon. I don't think Thatcher Demko saw this at all. That made it 2-1. to one. But the Canucks back and tied it again. This time Matthew Highmore. Spurgeon having trouble with the puck there. Highmore jumps on the loose puck and beats Talbot. So it's 2-2. Back to Pedersen again. Gets the rebound. Off the Garland shot, deposits this one, second goal of the game, but Minnesota would tie it before the end of the second period. They are 2-2 with at least 20 to go. The NHL will obviously not go down the same road as Wimbledon regarding Russian athletes. They're not going to start banning Alex Ovechkin, for example, from playing, but they also say they will not ban Russian juniors from this year's draft, which is July 7th and 8th in Montreal. Well, life for Vanny Sartini and the Vancouver Whitecaps is much different than it was at the end of last season. And this Saturday, they are going into Austin to face a team that's off to a great start, while the Whitecaps at the moment have the second worst record in MLS. Here we go. No calls. This is what the agony of defeat looks like. And so far, Vanny Sartini and the Whitecaps have had that agonizing look a lot this year. For a team that prided itself on tenacity and work ethic during last year's amazing push to the playoffs, the 2022 Whitecaps have consistently not shown up for large portions of games, and that's why they've won just once in seven matches. Vanny feels his team needs to stick with the weekly game plan. Too many of his guys are going off script. We had uh, too much... Uh 
trial of interpretation from too many players uh, during this uh, this run and uh, time where we when we actually stick to the plan and stick to our principle and play the way that we are supposed to play for the entire game the game were actually really good the players are working hard but not necessarily working smart it goes back to having that organized team-oriented game plan or success is going to be hard to come by what we need to understand is that uh, brain without heart sorry heart without brain is nothing okay the most important thing is the organization if we don't do what is supposed to do it's also meaningless to be intense this week's opponent austin is off to a great start four wins and two draws in their first seven games and second in the western conference the caps will be without ryan gauld who's still recovering from a concussion suffered last week in montreal so it's another tough test for the caps who desperately need something good to happen to turn their fortunes around be focused on the task don't think about too much of uh, our standing at the moment we need to be focused on the task because if if we do very good on the output the outcome will take care of itself Vasquez wants to have a chat with all right Blue Jays and Red Sox this afternoon at Fenway Park it's the top of the six it's two nothing and this one should be easy should it not be Vasquez the catcher mm, nope nope confusion in the infield going to come in to score and that scores Vladimir Guerrero mistakes with with any of those so the Jays get the lead on the way and a swing and they also got some brilliant pitching finishing up with Jordan Romano closing it out with a tying run on third Jackie Bradley Jr. grounds out game over 29th straight save for Romano going back to last year the Jays are eight and five on the season 11,842 lakes in Minnesota. They call it the, what is it, the, the, the land, land of, of 10,000 lakes. Right, so not entirely accurate. All right, see. It's the land of 11,840. But that doesn't roll off the top. Doesn't, no, thing. clearly it doesn't. Thanks, Squire. Thank you. Up next, an album drop and a concert on the downtown east side helping emerging artists find their voice. All right, Jordan Armstrong is here now with a look at what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11, including some breaking news, Jordan. Sophie, we are tracking a serious crash at a train crossing in Maple Ridge. This is at Lowheed Highway and 272nd Street. The highway is blocked by emergency vehicles, as you can see. It appears a truck and an SUV were caught up in the collision with the train. The wreckage of the SUV is pinned under the flat deck trailer. An air ambulance just left, but no details yet on injuries. Plus, how the operators of a Surrey pub are having a tough time setting up a location in Vancouver. First, they were looted by thieves. Then the Gastown fire hit. Now they're dealing with extended power outages and road closures for the demolition. These stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. All right, we'll look for you then. Thank you very much, Jordan. A two-night festival this weekend will showcase musicians from the downtown east side. It's an opportunity for people who never usually get to be on stage to share their talents. And as Jay Durant tells us on This Is BC, it came out of a chance encounter. On you. Kim Knighton performed live on stage just once. That was 20 years ago. She's getting ready for her first solo gig this weekend. I'm happy. I'm grateful. Yes, I'm excited. There will be 10 performers playing their own songs at the inaugural 100 Block Rock Live, showcasing musicians who live in Vancouver's downtown east side. 
Everything from rap to pop to punk and folk. These artists are finally getting their moment in the spotlight. Pack a million dollars in an old suitcase. You know, there's a lyric book. Organizer Eris Nix receives funding from the city. The idea for a music project was born after hearing a great sax player performing on the street. And I was like, my God, you need a record deal. And, uh, you know, could never find him again. But I was like, I'm going to go get the project so I can go up to that guy and be like, you're in studio tomorrow. Let's go. Wow. The two-night festival is in support of the second album release featuring musicians that otherwise wouldn't get this type of opportunity to be heard. Too many musicians and artists downtown are basically passed over because of where we live. And it's like, we're so overlooked just because of all the poverty and all the drugs. Tickets for the show at the Redgate Art Society can be purchased through the 100 Block Rock website. A new album release and a concert in the same week. It's a moment many of these artists have been dreaming about for a very long time. Some close to giving up hope that it would ever actually happen. It's a lot more of a pace than I ever thought something would happen. But I've always been hoping something would happen. It means maybe, that's what it means. Maybe that I can be heard. Jay Durant, Global News. Sounds good. I miss live shows. All right, let's bring Christy back in for last word on weather. Well, we've got lots to look forward to over the next couple of days. There's a slight chance of a passing shower out through the Fraser Valley, maybe along the mountains tomorrow afternoon. Otherwise, enjoy the sunshine Friday and Saturday, everyone. We definitely will. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.